Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This week's episode features a conversation with Masha Gessen, author and New York Times contributing opinion writer. She shared her views on Presidents Trump and Putin and words of caution for journalists covering the Trump administration's alleged connections to Russia. The conversation was moderated by Nico Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. Without further ado, I am really excited to have Masha Gessen here. She is a Russian and American journalist with the most incredible glasses I've seen in a while. <laughs> the author of 10 books of nonfiction, including the 2012 bestseller, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, which is an exceptional, exceptional book. I highly recommend it. And most recently, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which is coming this fall from Riverhead. She's a contributing opinion writer to the New York Times and a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books, as well as Harper's, The New Yorker, and other publications. She has been a Neiman Fellow and a Carnegie Millennial Fellow, among other awards and honors. She serves as Vice President of PEN America, a fine organization supporting writers. She has spent most of her life living in Moscow, but now makes her home in New York City. Please, let's give a warm welcome to Masha Gessen. I think I originally wanted to invite you after reading your piece in the New York Review of Books on autocracy, but then you just published another piece in the New York Review of Books a, a couple of weeks ago that I'm going to quote uh, from, Russia has served as a crutch for the American imagination. For the, tell me what you mean. I mean two things. One is that, I mean, Russia has, has proven to be sort of a universal crutch, uh, and it works backwards and forwards. Uh, it works backwards in the sense that it, uh, it explains Trump. Right? We can think of Trump as a foreign agent, we can think of him as having been elected by Putin, and that way we don't have to think of him as having been elected by Americans. So in that sense, he serves to explain the unimaginable, uh, Russia serves to explain the unimaginable, and it works forwards because we can imagine that the Russia investigation will bring Trump down and our national nightmare will be over. But you don't think it's over anytime soon? I don't think it's over anytime soon. I also don't think it's particularly useful to use Russia either backwards or forwards, which is not to say that there is nothing there. I just think that uh, this fixation on, on Russia as the potential silver bullet and also as the universal explanation misses very important points about why Americans did elect Donald Trump and also the fact that most likely he is not going to get impeached over Russia or anything else. You, you have written about how... Uh You've written about what it was like to be a journalist and an editor in, in Russia uh, as Putin was rising and the kind of challenges that created about truth and being a journalist. And you, you've kind of compared that to some of the challenges we're currently facing. And I wondered if you could just speak a little bit about how, how do you cover uh, uh, someone like Trump who lies indiscriminately? So with, uh, with great difficulty, 
Because I think we have to understand, and I, you know, I don't have a prescription here. I think that uh, it's much easier for us journalists to always talk about what is wrong than to actually be prescriptive. That's part of the reason we we chose this profession. <laughs> but um, I think that uh, we have to understand how Trump uses lies, how he uses language, which is actually weirdly. Uh, similar to the way Putin uses lies and language. Um, and that is to assert power. And what I mean by that, by that is that his main goal is not necessarily to make you believe that three million people or however many people um, voted illegally or that, uh, or that Obama wiretapped Trump Tower. Uh, his main goal is to assert his power over reality. Right, which is which is a basic bully tactic. It's a sort of you know I'm going to say whatever the hell I want, whenever the hell I want, and what are you going to do about it? Uh, and in that way, it's quite similar to to the way Putin, for example, if you if you recall, uh, said for nearly two years that there were no Russian troops in Ukraine. Uh, there was a civil war. And then he said, well, of course there are Russian troops in Ukraine. And that moment when he said, of course, is actually the most telling moment because it wasn't an admission of having lied. It was yet another assertion of being able to say whatever the hell he wants, whenever the hell he wants to. And that sort of communicates that he's not just president of the country, but he's also king of reality. Uh, you don't fight that just with fact-checking. Right, uh, and I think we should have realized that during the campaign. Right, when I think it was the Times that said uh, that at some point tallied it up, or maybe it was the Washington Post that said, "Oh, Trump has lied 91% of the time." Well, that's not you know you don't fight that with fact checking. You kind of have to take in that whole story and try to figure out what's going on uh, in the way that goes beyond fact check. Talk, talk more. Like, how do you? Oh, fight I don't know. That? I don't. <laughs> well, what was your experience in covering Putin in Russia? Well, my experience was of you know having such unmitigated success that here I am, uh, a second-time refugee in uh, uh, in in the states. Um, so, I mean, again, my lessons are sort of about what not to do and what uh, and what we did wrong. And one of the things, and this I think is really useful, one of the things that we did wrong early on is we got caught up in the believable rather than the verifiable, right? The believable uh, rather than the verifiable. Right. And so every time, uh, for example, I'm asked, and this happens frequently, how believable is the Russia dossier? I get shivers of, uh, you know, very unpleasant shivers of recognition, because because that's what happens when you can't actually corroborate something, right? And you, uh, the, the, there's a lot of sort of romantic romantic writing and talking right now about how we're all going to be reporting from the outside in and how uh, how infinitely superior that is to reporting the end from of inside, access inside out and of access, access journalism, and there's there. There are good points to that, but I just want to say that losing access hurts, and it is a net loss. There's less information. It and is a net loss, yeah. after all you're saying. Yeah, oh. and um, when you stop being able to ask questions of, uh, of officials, when officials are lying to you, when, uh, when the courts and law enforcement in general stop doing their jobs, right? so you can't actually rely on court records to tell you whether someone was guilty or not. Where this is, this case was 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 closed, and um, when you can't sort of 
find solid footing on any of the normal institutional supports that, jur that journalists use, you enter this squishy territory of the believable rather than the provable. And I just don't want us to be hurrying into that territory by trafficking the believable while we, st we still have most of the tools of corroboration. That we can still have multiple sources in reporting news. Right. So we should really stay focused on that. And we should, we should try to sort of stick to that normal as long as we can maintain that normal. That's a, that's a way of protecting it. Looking, looking back at the last uh, decade or so in Russia, was there, was there a single moment when the, the trend there really crystallized for you where you could, is there a story you can tell or was it, was it more of just a gradual shift? You know, I mean, the problem uh, of, of living in a degrading regime and degrading in both ways, it's degrading and it degrades you. Um, the problem of living with that is that there's, there are all these points of no return. And, uh, and after you've written a, a few columns about how now Russia has reached the point of no return, you know better, but then someone else comes along and starts writing columns about how, um, how you've reached the point of no return. To my mind, um, the point of no return was reached uh, on Putin's first working day in office, uh, his first day uh, in the Kremlin after the inauguration when he ordered a raid of, the, uh, of Media Most, the company that owned uh, the only independent television, uh, nationally broadcasting television station in the country, and a number of other publications, including the magazine where I worked. Uh, and it was a show raid. It was uh, uh, it was made for television. They uh, broadcast the humiliation of the people working at the. Uh, they didn't raid the journalists' offices. It was corporate headquarters. Uh, but, you know, people in ski masks marched in, uh, you know, made executives lie down on the floor with their hands behind their backs. Uh, it was a show of domination. And it was a declaration of war on, the, on independent media. And within a year of that day, uh, the state had taken over all broadcast television. So on the one hand, you're writing and talking over the last few months about uh, uh, kind of looking at what has happened in Russia as one way of understanding some of the challenges the U.S. press and kind of some of the institutions of democracy here are facing. But on the other, you don't want us to get too obsessed with Russia, right? That that that's that's that 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 is potentially a. Um, uh, a distraction or a, or a straw man that you you ultimately uh, would it be fair to say you ultimately still have some hope for the strength of our democratic institutions? Oh, I think uh, you know we have the saying in Russia uh, in Russian. Uh, well, actually, we have the saying in English as well. You know, hope dies last. Uh, but um, so I will have hope until it's over. But uh, I think that we have things to protect. Uh, that the Russia, the obsession with Russia isn't necessarily conducive to protecting. And the thing that we have to protect is politics, right? And politics is uh, what happens out in the open. Politics is an opportunity for people to act meaningfully out in the open. When we are focused on something that is behind the scenes, right? Uh, when we're focused on revealing secrets, rather than on acting out in the open, we're all doing damage ourselves to our ability to act in the open. 
And again, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a Russia investigation. I'm just saying it should not be the main or the sole or even the main focus of people who are concerned with protecting democracy under Trump. That, that politics, disagreement, the Supreme Court nominee, exactly. that this must go on, that right. that's kind of an important part of, that is partisan and as ugly as it can be, that's an important part of the democratic process. Absolutely, and I think you know, that the defeat of the, uh, of the, of the health care legislation was actually a victory for meaningful politics. Right? Uh, and uh, because the disagreement, the actual sub substantive disagreement that occurred among Republicans was proof that politics still happens. Right? Uh, my, my power initial, is not absolute. Right, power is not absolute. That the, the, uh, there are Republican Congress members who are concerned with going back to their constituents and being accountable to them. That's politics. That's exactly the public sphere that we need to be protecting. What, what, has, uh, what has surprised you most over the last six months? What has surprised me most over the last six months? Oh, um, I think it was the, uh, what happened, and I think it was sort of temporary for now, what happened after the joint, uh, the, 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 the address to Congress. Um, when Trump showed that he could read from a teleprompter for uh, an hour and a half instead of ranting like uh, a maniac as he had in the press conference uh, shortly before that. Um, and as, uh, as horrifying as that spectacle was, as cynical as it was, as, um, you know, as, uh, as disgusting as that moment was when, uh, when he made that um, widow stand up and then said, you know, uh, Ryan, I think is, was her husband's name, he's smiling because you just set some sort of record. I mean, that was distasteful. And, and then uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the CNN pundit room, Van Jones talked about how Trump had become presidential that, that, at that moment. And sort of the entire punditry of that, of that evening was this extended sigh of relief that segued into just awe and celebration at this man acting semi-normal for, uh, for an hour and a half. And fortunately, uh, after about 24 hours came the sort of the second day uh, opinion pieces that said, no, that was not presidential. And, uh, uh, and that said all, all sort of, I, I think, the, 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 the smart and normal things. But that moment was like, oh my God, this is, the, uh, it was not exactly surprising, but it's still, it was still shocking. Uh, it was exactly sort of what happens when you are uh, in an, you feel like you're in an insane asylum for a month and a half, and suddenly there's a moment, just a moment of normalcy. And it's like, oh, okay, I can live with that. You know, I can live with, with, with abject cynicism uh, instead of total insanity. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, <laughs> so uh, I actually have like an infinite number of questions for you, but I'm just going to try and restrain myself another few more and then open it up to the audience. So one thing uh, I wanted to go back to was you, you said that Trump uh, and Putin share a kind of flagrant disregard for the truth. And 
you know, we might even say a, a deep uh, cynicism about the role of the independent media. But, you know, they're also very different, or at least in reading uh, your book, one of my takeaways was about the just intense discipline of Putin, just an almost unimaginable, very nearly pathological discipline, which would, would appear to be very different from our president. <laughs> it would seem that way, wouldn't it? Uh, and it's interesting that um, Trump clearly admires Putin so much, and, uh, and maybe that that outward discipline and uh, that, that show of total control, which I think is deceptive, but he makes a show of total control uh, all the time. That That's clearly appealing to, to Trump. Or as, as Tim Snyder wrote uh, beautifully in, in the New York Review of Books, uh, Putin is the dictator that Trump plays on TV. This was, this was during the election <laughs> campaign. But... Um, uh, but, I mean, they are vastly different in their presentation. You know, Trump basically communicates through raw emotion. Uh, Putin is the exact opposite. He prides himself on his flat affect. Uh, in fact, one of the stories that he likes told about him is a story about how his beloved dog was killed and he didn't betray any emotion when his assistant informed him of, the, uh, of this. Uh, and th this is the kind of thing that he likes published because it portrays sort of the control that he exercises over his self and over his uh, his emotion, and that to him translates into sort of control um, over everything else. Also, they have inherited vastly different political cultures and historical legacies. And what Putin has been able to do is, in building a mafia state, tap into the habits and instincts of a, a totalitarian society, which which is what my, my most recent book is about, and it's it's sort of uh, uh, trying to understand how the lived experience in Russia uh, has become the experience of living in a totalitarian state, even though there's no totalitarian regime, or there's no regime that tries to be totalitarian. It's a mafia state, right? But the signals that it sends out tap into the habits of a totalitarian society. Uh, Trump is trying to build a mafia state in a democratic society. Uh, so the, even if they send out the same sorts of signals, they're going to be interpreted very differently and the kind of reaction that they're getting are very different. So I think, I think there, the, we have to be aware of how little predictive value there is in, mm -hmm. uh, in their similarities. So talk a little bit more about your book that is coming out and, and how you came to write it and, and what, what it's about. Um, well, it's a doorstopper. Uh, <laughs> it's, the Russia, it's the Russia book to end all Russia books. Uh, it's, uh, um, somebody writes one of those every couple of years, but... Um, uh, it's, uh, Frequently you. <laughs> uh, it's, um, so after I wrote the Putin book, I, um, I thought I was going to, that my next book was going to be a book about the, the decline and fall of the Putin regime. Uh, and after a while, I realized that that's not what I was saving strength on. Uh, and actually, ended up, I, I wrote a, a very short book, a really fun book about Pussy Riot, um, which was really a book about uh, the, the microcosm of the of the political crackdown that happened right after Putin came back to the office of president in, uh, president of t in 2012. But uh, at some point, I um, 
I wanted to write about trauma and the psychology of totalitarianism. There's very little about trauma as such in the book in the end, because then I um, end up looking for ways to tell that story. Uh, and, and I hope that the idea of trauma sort of comes across, but it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not really uh, uh, openly sort of handled in the book. What I ended up doing is taking four people who uh, grew up in the 1990s. So two of them were actually born in 1984, uh, and, and one in 85, one in 82. Um, but they, they grew up in the 1990s. I needed them to be people who remembered the 90s. Um, very much from the inside, from inside a family, from uh, uh, fr from the point of view of, of, of a kid who's watching television and comparing it to what is happening in his own house. But I needed them to have what the, at least what they thought was their own memory of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Hmm. And so I chose people uh, for whom it was one of the main, uh, main early memories of, of, the, of their lives. And my other criterion for choosing them was that their lives needed to uh, have changed drastically as a result of the crackdown that began in 2012. So they're very different. Uh, one is uh, a person who ended up basically a political prisoner in 2012. She was um, uh, she, she was a, a, a Russia a Putin era sort of yuppie uh, who became a, a, a protester in 2011-2012, which is a common story, and then was charged with, uh, with a political crime. And so her life just completely went off the rails, uh, and she's become essentially a professional uh, political activist. Uh, and another person uh, was also a protester. He is the grandson of uh, Alexander Nikolaevich Yakovlev, who's widely believed uh, by the considered sort of the, the intellectual behind Perestroika, and his grandson was also an active protester <coughs> who was, has just been plunged into a completely debilitating depression by the crackdown, has become a barely functioning human being. And two other people have had to leave the country. Uh, one is the daughter of Boris Nemtsov, uh, and, uh, who's a political activist and a journalist in her own right. Um, and she left sh uh, shortly after her father was murdered. And another is uh, a young academic who founded the LGBT Studies Center, the only LGBT Studies Center in the country at Perm State University, and was this brilliant up-and-coming academic and found himself running for his life, literally, uh, and now he lives in Brighton Beach. So these four stories are interconnected with sort of an intellectual history of totalitarianism. Uh, and and I try to, to make that work in a 550-page narrative. And, and so uh, help me connect these four of them born in, well, I guess these four of them who grew up in the 90s, mm -hmm. was, were you thinking that they had no experience, that they had no experience of totalitarianism, yeah. even though there was that history in Russia, and it was, and then they were confronted with that on the return? Right. So another um, another main character in the book, uh, in addition to these four people, it has also three intellectuals who are trying to grapple with uh, sciences or social sciences that weren't, uh, that were more or less underground in the Soviet period. So there's a philosopher, a sociologist, and a psychoanalyst. And the sociologist is uh, Lev Gutkov, who's um, 
who is the head of the Levada Center, which is uh, the, uh, the only independent polling organization in Russia now, but also is a soci sociological research organization. They uh, have been doing a long, uh, a, a long running study called the Homo Sovietico study. Uh, and uh, their initial theory, when they went into the, uh, their initial hypothesis when they started doing the study in 1989, was that the last generation of Soviet citizens to remember state terror was dying off. And so, and with them, the institutions of the totalitarian state had to die off because uh, the definition of totalitarianism that they were working with involved actually existing state terror. And their initial uh, research bore out uh, that hypothesis. What they, the characteristics that they identified as being the characteristics of Thomas Sovieticus seemed to be much less pronounced in the younger generation than in the generation that was sort of fading from the scene. Uh, so they predicted in 1989 that the Soviet Union was going to collapse and because the new generation was no longer going to sustain uh, a totalitarian society. Sure enough, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. They patted themselves on the backs. And in 1994, they went back to, uh, to do the survey again. And they saw really weird results that made them reconsider uh, the idea that Homo Sovieticus was, was disappearing from the scene. Uh, they thought that Homo Sovieticus was sort of resurgent in the younger generation. Five years later, they came to the conclusion that Homo Sovieticus was not only resurgent, but was not only su sustaining itself, but was actually reproducing. Uh, and by they've been doing surveys every five years, and these are huge and, and, and fascinating uh, surveys that are very interestingly designed. Um, and basically, they um, at this point they, they their hypothesis that Homo sapiensicus is reproducing indefinitely, and it seems to be the memory of the memory of state terror and the uh, the failure to dismantle the social and cultural and formal institutions of the Soviet state that has led to the reproduction of, of totalitarian society. And to me, this is fascinating also in light of the protests this, this past weekend, where uh, everyone in Russia is talking about how, it, you know, I, I'm sure most of you have heard that, right, that hundreds of thousands of people came out into the streets mm -hmm. in, in uh, over 90 cities around Russia. And a lot of these protesters appear to have been very, very young. Uh, a lot of high school students. It's not entirely clear whether Proportionally, really, there are a lot more young, young people, but they're much more visible, and there are a lot more arrests of young people. Uh, and again, we can't tell whether the police used to be reluctant to, to arrest high school students or whether they're actually disproportionately represented among the protesters. But in any case, what's interesting to me is that um, Russian intellectuals have launched into this whole uh, discussion of how this is the new generation that's finally going to bring, uh, bring it down. Uh, and. Uh, and it's fascinating to me because they've already written off the 30-year-olds. The 30-year-olds have already written themselves off. They perceive themselves to be sort of uh, irreparably damaged by the legacy of totalitarianism, <laughs> which they can't even remember. It kind of makes me think of that uh, what's bred in the bone is made true in the flesh, right? That there's something about uh, history that 
that persists with us and makes me actually think of this research from the School of Public Health here at Harvard, mm -hmm. David Williams, about the physiological impact of racism, of experiencing right. racism. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there, it's been interesting to me, and uh, here's another weird parallel. Uh, part of what I discuss in the book is research on Russian depopulation right? and how there's uh, Russia's excess mortality is unexplained. Uh, there, uh, there's sort of uh, popular beliefs that it's vodka and it's poor diet and it's pollution. And actually when you break it all down, or not you, but uh, uh, people who actually research this stuff, when they break it all down, about half of the excess death, deaths are not explained by alcoholism, uh, poor diet, uh, and pollution, right? Uh, and smoking and all the other stuff. Because there are other countries that smoke as much, there are other countries that drink as much or more, uh, amazingly. Uh, there, are, uh, there are other countries that are more polluted uh, because Russian industry has actually been in a downward spiral for, spiral for more than a generation. Uh, and uh, there's a theory advanced by uh, an economist turned demographer named Nicholas Eberstadt um, that uh, perhaps Russians are dying of depression and hopelessness. Right? Uh, that, uh, and, and, and in fact, his, uh, his data crunches show that there have been only two blips when Russia's, uh, Russia's life expectancy shot up a little bit and that was under, uh, during Khrushchev, on, uh, during the thaw, and under Gorbachev, during Perestroika. And he thinks these were uh, are sort of hope bleep, uh, blips. Right? Uh, huh. uh, and um, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last few days, there have been a few interesting articles on how white American life expectancy is linked to depression. And you know, this idea that white Americans are dying of, depression, uh, of despair which is something that we've been talking about in relationship to Russia for a few years. On that warm and exciting <laughs> note. Uh, oh, that's my specialty. I will, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll open this up to questions from the audience. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm Christine Jacobson, and I work in the library here at the Kennedy School. Um, I uh, was wondering if we could return briefly to the discussion around um, journalist coverage of the Trump administration's supposed connections to the Kremlin, and if you could speak a little bit more about the consequences you think that are facing the American um, sphere of journalism if they continue to publish um, many, many pieces. I think Washington Post put 10 journalists on their last article on Paul Manafort, and um, sort of like, what do you think uh, deserves this coverage and this sheer amount of investigative journalism and, and what maybe doesn't? Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that the Washington Post is the kind of paper that, um, by putting 10 journalists on the case, uh, is, is detracting hugely from other coverage. I mean, they just added 60 people uh, to, their, uh, to their newsroom. Uh, they probably have the resources to do a lot of stories really well. And, um, and they have done really well, I think, on that story. I'm much more worried about um, airtime, actually, uh, and um, the fact that the, uh, you have whole nights when uh, CNN and MSNBC, which is where most Americans uh, will, will, will get sort of their understanding of politics, 
uh, where, uh, where CNN and MSNBC you know, talk all night about the Russian connection. Um, CNN has, uh, I think, been not great about uh, sticking to the facts. And one example um, is the, 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 the this, this little strain of the story that I've been following since July, which is in July, the Washington Post published a piece um, on uh, how the, the Trump team derailed an amendment uh, to the Republican uh, platform, right? The amendment would have added lethal force to the clause on Russia and Ukraine in the Republican platform, in the Republican Party platform. Uh, so the, 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 the clause already said that the Republican Party supports uh, maintaining and possibly strengthening sanctions against Russia, and the amendment would have added, and supplying lethal force, right? So, the, the piece said that the Trump team didn't seem to be particularly concerned about anything else in the platform, but they derailed that, uh, that amendment. But the headline on the piece was misleading. It said that they took that clause out of the, uh, of the platform. Uh, a few days later, the first of the, uh, of the conspiratorial columns be began running. Uh, Anne Applebaum's in the uh, in the Washington Post, then then Paul Krugman in uh, in the New York Times. Anne Applebaum called uh, Trump the Siberian candidate. Paul Krugman called him the Manchurian candidate. And uh, the that story of the Republican platform amendment started morphing. It changed from the amendment being derailed to the wording being taken out of the platform. By the time uh, CNN was reporting on it a couple of weeks ago, it had gone to putting language into the Republican platform. Uh, now, there was one report, uh, uh, one in 30 seconds, uh, uh, Jim Acosta, who's the White House correspondent for CNN, mentioned this non-existent language that was put into the, uh, the, the Republican platform four times. Right? Um, it, he was doing this when he was describing the meetings between uh, the, the, the Carter Page and uh, somebody else, I can't remember who the second person was, with Russian officials during the Republican convention. Now those meetings were actually encounters during a panel by the, uh, hosted by the Heritage Foundation on foreign policy uh, at which um, uh, at which the Russian ambassador approached people from the Trump campaign because Trump was clearly the nominee and nobody knew what his foreign policy was going to be. And the second meeting was an encounter during a cocktail party during the Republican convention, which is difficult to make it sound sinister unless you add this non-existent language that went into the Republican platform. That's the sort of thing I'm really worried about, right? It's, the, it's not exactly fake news. It's just really hugely sloppy reporting that becomes conspiracy thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Dugun. Uh, I'm a student here. Uh, I read your book. Excellent book. Thank you. Thank you. Um, when I was reading your book, I came across Alexei Navalny, <coughs> and. I felt kind of lost. I think that feeling of loss is shared by many readers in that section. And I was thinking, what 
anybody would do in a position uh, in, in order to oppose that kind of trend where the Russia is going, in order to oppose that repression, especially in an environment when there is actual <coughs> threat to your life. What would Alexei Navalny would have done differently so he would have stayed alive? <coughs> what, well, Alexei Navalny is very much alive. Uh, um, uh, was the accountant who... Oh, the accountant, um, Sergei Magnitsky. Ah, Magnitsky, yes. thank right. you. Sorry. Uh -huh. Right. Well, the story of Sergei Magnitsky is um, is actually, uh, I mean, it's not a story of, the oppo of opposition to the regime. It's, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's an absolutely heartbreaking story that for, for some people really was a turning point, I think, in Russia for, certainly for a lot of Russian entrepreneurs who were riding high and were just struck uh, stopped dead in their tracks by, by Magnitsky's death. So for, for those who don't know, Magnitsky was an accountant, a freelance accountant, who was uh, doing work for a, um, an international investor called Bill Browder, uh, who's since written a book about it uh, called The Red Letter. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Bill Browder was an American-born British uh, investor in Russia, who ran a pretty large investment uh, fund, about $4.3 billion, uh, which, um, which specialized in investing, uh, buying minority shares in large Russian companies, and then uh, launching uh, the sort of court cases against poor corporate practices in those companies, getting quick improvements in corporate practices uh, as a result of those court cases and selling the shares that immediately after those court decisions went up in price. So he was making a lot of enemies in the country while he, uh, uh, through his, this sort of interesting uh, investment technique. Um, at one point he found that he was persona non grata in Russia. Um, he was in London and then uh, uh, his accountant, Sergei Magnitsky, discovered that uh, uh, Browder's companies had been essentially hijacked. Uh, Browder had taken all the money out of the companies once he was banned uh, from entering Russia, but those empty shell companies were hijacked by somebody else for the purpose of laundering uh, $230 million in Russian treasury money through those companies. And I can explain how that was done, but it's a little complicated. Anyway, um, Magnitsky uncovered that scam and went to the prosecutor's office to try to report it uh, and was immediately imprisoned and tortured to death in prison. He's, he did not have the idea of fighting the regime. He actually had total faith in the regime. He had total faith in going to the prosecutor and getting the prosecutor uh, to try to figure out how that money was stolen from the treasury. It didn't even occur to him that the prosecutor was probably either in on it or was reported to somebody who was in on stealing $230 million uh, from, from the Russian treasury. It's Kafka-esque. But what, what, what could, I guess the question was, what could he have done differently? Or what, what is there to do in that kind of power um, dynamic? Well, you can't fight it. I mean, what Browder did is he took the money and moved to London. He actually took most of his Russian staff with him. Magnitsky wouldn't move. Huh. 
uh, Browder had the very clear idea that they were endangered. So that, that, that was, I think, wise. Uh, Matthew Luxman, I'm a journalist and graduate student at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. Um, I find it very interesting, this idea that the mortality, um, the rising mortality rate was connected to this kind of loss of meaning. You mentioned the two points during the Khrushchev and the Gorbachev period. It seems to me that the other period when um, life expectancy rose was actually on the Putin, or specifically a wave continued during the 2000s that started after the 1998 crisis. And I'm wondering what your view is on, I know Putin obviously connects his own popularity with this, or his successes with his narrative of stability. And a lot of people vested their hopes in him because they believe that he was countering the West. And there is this kind of symbolic politics at play. So I'm wondering to what extent you think that um, there is this kind of element um, and kind of his popularity in the 2000s and when he came, came to power was also connected with, um, with this idea of countering the West. Um. So it's the, the statistics on life expectancy under Putin are actually a little tricky, uh, and um, there seemed to have been a, a small blip, but it's not; it wasn't sustained, and it doesn't look sustainable. It seems to be just because he, uh, there was a, a, a sort of a more numerous generation. There's, uh, in addition to the constant depopulation in Russia, there are also the unresolved effects of World War II. So there's a there's a dip and a rise. Every uh, with every subsequent generation, um, so the uh, when the children of the children of people who who were born during World War II were having children, there was a huge dip, right? Uh, and then when the next population, uh, the, the next demographic group came up, there was a little bit of a rise, but that's not that ha doesn't actually affect the larger picture of Russian depopulation uh, and. Um, and the, the larger picture of, the, of life, life expectancy. But um, to, the, uh, to, to the other question uh, on countering the West, I mean, yeah, absolutely. He, Putin, uh, he didn't start this. I think there was uh, one of the major turning points in, uh, in Russia's perception of itself in relationship to the West came after the Kosovo bombing in, in 1999. But um, Putin, tapped into it very effectively, uh, into this idea that Russia uh, needed to, uh, to, to, to become a great power again, that it needed to be recognized as a player in the international stage, that it needed to be consulted, that it was hugely insulted by the, uh, the American failure to consult it in 1999. Uh, I mean, again, if you sort of dig a little bit deeper, I think that the roots of that success are lie in the failure of Russia to try to sort of reconceptualize itself in the early 90s. Uh, Russia was, uh, uh, Russia never became a post-imperial country. Russia never found a way to think of itself as anything other than a great power. Uh, that opportunity was very briefly sort of considered in the early 90s and set aside. So all Russia was through the 90s was a humiliated great power. You know? Not a country that had given up its imperial ambitions, but a country that had been defeated uh, and had had to give up its imperial pos possessions. And um, I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful book by a Harvard historian actually uh, called *The Last Empire* that reconceptualizes the collapse of the Soviet Union as the 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 preordained end of an empire 
in an age when empires ended. But Russia is an empire that refused to die. And Putin very effectively sort of tapped into that sentiment and trafficked in that, in that nostalgia, which, uh, of, of which sort of this anti-Western sentiment is, is, just, is just one element. Hi. Uh, thank you very much, Masha. Um, my name is Luke Michael. I'm also a graduate student at the same center, the Russian, uh, Davis Center for Russian Studies. I just wanted to return quickly to the question of the you know, number of young people in the, the weekend protests. And one of the things I've noticed over my past couple of trips to, to Russia has been an increase in sympathy with um, the kind of official line in terms of international politics, um, even among ostensibly liberal uh, young Russians. And yet, as you quite rightly observed, there did seem to, be, seem to be this increase of young people at this, again, essentially anti-establishment uh, protest. And I was wondering how that might be reconciled and what the kind of political implications might be of this kind of tension in uh, young people and their political views. Right. I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> uh, because I think it's, it's, um, it's difficult to, inter to, to understand the protests this, this weekend. As, uh, or, or I, I mean, it's not difficult, but it's, uh, we immediately assume that they're protests against Putin and that they're political. And I don't think they are. You know, uh, they are, uh, and in some ways, uh, the protests in 2011, 2012 were very similar. But these are the, here the difference is just more pronounced. These are protests against corruption, right? Uh, they are protests in a way for good government. Right? Uh, they're not protests against this regime, right? They're not um, political in that sense. They do not actually have an issue with the policies of this regime, right? They do not have an issue with the war in Ukraine. They do not have an issue with the annexation of Crimea. They do not have an issue with the war in Syria. Uh, they do not have an issue with, 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 with um, even the structure of the Russian state, right? Uh, with Putin's media policies, uh, which I think, to which I think most of these protesters are just utterly oblivious. They think that the television belongs to the state, right? Uh, and, um, and that's one of the reasons they don't watch it. Uh, they uh, want an end to corruption. They want an end to the daily humiliation of living in a profoundly corrupt state. They um, they want the uh, they want I think a kind of public decency observed. I think part of the reason that the catalyst uh, that that that, that Navalny's investigation into Medvedev's corruption was such an effective catalyst was because it's obscene, right? It's not just that he has embezzled so much money uh, or appropriated or amassed so much money. It's the disgusting way in which he displays it right? that, uh, that, that I think really uh, offended people. And so the danger of, the, of that kind of protest is that it can be uh, anti-corruption protests can be addressed with anti-corruption measures. You can fire Medvedev. You can stage anti-corruption trials. You can, uh, you know, take a page out of China's playbook, and start jailing or executing local officials or regional officials for mm -hmm. corruption. Uh, I don't. I'm not predicting that that's what Putin will do. I think that it's likelier that he will just crack down politically. Uh, which, but if he were really smart he would respond with, with, with major anti-corruption measures. So we might, we might actually see a combination of, 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 of the two. Uh, these protests could become political. Uh, 
if a political critique were introduced. But that hasn't happened. There is no political critique that's part of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of those protests. This is really interesting. I'm, I'm, I find it particularly yeah, Introduce yourself. I'm Washington Kilo, the faculty here. Um, the, the issue of conspiratorial thinking, that's, that's, that's fascinating. We've, we've had uh, actual conspiracies in this, in this country happen. Uh, just to mention two, you know, Watergate, the Iran-Contra scandal, there are many others. Some of them we actually don't know about because they were probably never uncovered. Um, both of those, and one might argue this case, in this case as well, the, the, there is a reaction to government secrecy, to, to a, a sense, increasing sense that the people in power are covering something up. I would argue that without conspiratorial thinking, Watergate would never have been uncovered. And, and in fact, the, you, you needed conspiratorial thinking to start imagining right, the extent to this, to how high this might go, in a society in which people tend to assume that the president and other people in power have good intentions, or at least are thinking about the public good. So wouldn't you th also agree that in this case, what we're seeing is not so much a desire for looking for conspiracies, but more a response to what began as a refusal to release uh, tax returns, uh, and increasingly what seems to be uh, intent among many people to hide as much as, as, as possible, and that without conspiratorial thinking, in a sense, we might never find out uh, if in fact uh, you know, something is there, right? So I, I'm curious to get, get your, I guess the other way to frame this is what is so what is so worrying about conspiratorial mm -hmm. thinking? What, what's, the, what's the problem here uh, in the larger scheme of things if we assume that the people engaged in conspiratorial thinking really want uh, the public good? Right. So um, a couple of things. I, I, um, I think that that's a very charitable way of, um, of interpreting where conspira conspiratorial thinking comes from. and. Uh, I used to uh, always assume that conspiracy thinking is a symptom of a lack of information. That was sort of when I was writing a book about the Boston bombers. Uh, that was uh, that, that that was my assumption sort of through whole throughout the whole research process. That the reason I was encountering so many people uh, who believed. Uh, that the Tsarnaev brothers were not guilty, that they had been set up, that the whole uh, that the whole uh, the terrorist attack was was a government plot, etc. That all of it stemmed from the obvious uh, lacunae of, inf of information in the FBI investigation, and then um, I st uh, started thinking about why uh, there is such conspiracy thinking in Israel around the murder of Itzhak Rabin, where there's no lack of information. Where, where, you know, it's, 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 it's a murder that's just been laid bare, and every second of, uh, of it has, has been documented and proven. And, uh, and it's a country with, you know, with a healthy, or was at the time, a country with a healthier uh, de democracy and, uh, and a functioning court system and law enforcement. And on and on, and I and I um. I have finally come to the conclusion for myself that conspiracy thinking is actually something that happens when the unimaginable happens, right? Uh, that 
And that's why there's so much conspiracy thinking around the Trump election. It's not because we lack explanations or information about how Trump got elected, right? And that, you know, I'm not saying that he's not hiding his tax returns, but we don't actually lack information about how he got elected, right? Um, that doesn't require an explanation. It requires an explanation because we can't conceive of, it, of the fact that it happened. Right? Uh, and um, the reason conspiracy thinking is, uh, is dangerous is, is related to that, right? Uh, it's, as, as, as Hannah Arendt wrote, you know, consp conspiracy thinking is what makes uh, the messy, and I'm paraphrasing, the messy and irrational world make sense. It is, it responds to the needs of the human mind for a simpler explanation. Uh, and that also means that it keeps us from facing uh, the mess that, that, that we're in. That's why it's dangerous. The other reason that it's dangerous, and there was a wonderful article about, uh, by Ivan Krustev on that um, in the New York Times, uh, I think a week and a half ago, uh, and it was, it was an article on the difference between truth and secrets. Hmm. Um, and that tr uh, truth can be found and determined, and secrets can only be revealed. Where, uh, where I think that's dangerous is that if you're looking for secrets to be revealed, you're not acting in the public sphere. You are not, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're trying to connect the dots sitting at home in your own mind rather than acting politically. So that's, that's why I think conspiracy thinking is so dangerous because, because we are facing an actual threat to politics, to, to public action, to the public sphere as such. And so to try to, hmm. to, to be looking behind the scenes instead of acting publicly, uh, I, I think can be dangerous. Shonor? Hi, my name is Shonor and I'm a student here. Thank you so much. Um, I remember from the six rules you wrote for surviving a dictator that one of the points you made were that we should believe what he says he's going to do. I woke up this morning and heard that 200 civilians had been killed in Mosul, um, and the radio played Trump saying, I'm going to bomb the hell out of ISIS. And so, um, what are we, we can believe that we can believe him about what he says he's going to do. Um, but what do we do about that? And connected to that, he's also spewing lies, as you talked about, and trying to entirely control what we think about as the truth. So what do we believe? What do we not believe? And then if fact-checking is enough, is not enough, particularly as writers, what do we do? Um, well, that, that's, that, that was a multi-part question. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, the, the, great, the, the great part of the question, I think, is, is what, how do you believe somebody who's lying all the time? Uh, I think that um, his, Trump was actually very clear about his intentions. There were certain things, uh, and at the time that I was writing that piece, uh, if you remember, that was like the ancient times when nobody believed he could possibly build a wall. Mm. That was one of the things that we were talking about incessantly, right? Because at every rally, he would say, I'm going to build that wall. And, um, uh, and, and, and a lot of the public conversation at the time was focused on the fact that 
he can't possibly build a wall. So that was, that was actually what I was addressing at the time. It was, believe him, he is going to build the wall. It doesn't matter that it's going to cost you know, $20 billion or whatever it's going to cost, and it's going to be too expensive to maintain. Um, it doesn't matter that it's not going to be effective. He says he's going to build the wall. Um, of course, it's possible that some of it is going to end up being chicken wire, but, uh, uh, but that's not the point. The point is, uh, you know, he, uh, he was clear about his intentions, and his intentions were to declare war in, on immigrants in this country. And that war is ongoing, right? And that war exceeds, I think, anybody's imagination from a few months ago or even from a month ago. So that's that, that that's what I was talking about. I think that um, that we, we can't believe him indiscriminately, obviously, especially since he lies. Uh, but we can't believe him in the, uh, when he says and re continues to repeat outrageous things. Um, and our our tendency is not to believe them because they're irrational. That's where you sort of you check your your own rationality and go with his irrationality because he is the president. And there's power to be derived from. Uh, pursuing and achieving an apparently outrageous vision. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, this will be our last question. Introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Sia, I'm a student here. Um, cyber security and cyber attacks from Russia are becoming a huge issue. We saw that in the U.S. election. We have elections coming up in France and Germany. Um, what do you think the U.S. and more, more broadly NATO can do uh, to fend off against some of these attacks? Is there like a policy that should be adopted? I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not a policy person. Uh, I think again, our our job is to criticize, right? And their job is to is to make policy. Uh, I I I have no idea what can be done effectively. Whatever um, that is, I think wasn't done. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think uh, we can certainly look at the way that. Um, uh, that the Obama administration handled the information that it had, uh, and I think we can say that wasn't a great way, right? Uh, the, I mean, basically, Obama's policy toward Russia was to strate strategically disengage at every opportunity, right? Uh, and strategic disengagement is probably not something that works against uh, cyber threats. Masha, I have a couple of closing questions. Uh, one, I just wondered, you're really intimately familiar with both Russian culture and American culture, and how, how do the, what are the similarities, similarities, differences, how the two cultures see journalists and the purpose of journalism? <laughs> uh, nothing like a general question like that. Uh, I mean, I, I just I was responding in part because you said just now, it's just our job to criticize, right. Right. right? And I wondered if that, you know, I wonder if that's a shared view of journalism. Uh, well, I think it's it's a view that journalists share. I think that a criticism that journalists often face, and more often in Russia than in this country, is, well, what do you propose we do about it? You know, it's fine to criticize. I mean, that's a very, really facile. Uh, criticism of, of, of journalists, and that's something that, because Russia, uh, the Russian regime perceives uh, the media as the opposition party, uh, it, uh, it it lobs against the exact same criticism as it uh, lobs against the protesters. You know, well, what's your positive agenda? 
uh, which is obviously dishonest and unfair uh, because opposition, uh, I, I try not to even use the word opposition when I talk about Russia because they're opposition activists, but there's no opposition as such. Parties can't register. There's no access to media. There's no access to elections. You can't call them the opposition, right? These people who would be the opposition have been shut off from all the regular mechanisms of politics, and then they're criticized for not being able to propose a positive agenda right? uh, when they have, uh, when they don't actually have the opportunity to do any of those things. Uh, so this similar criticism is, is, is lobbed against journalists even more unfairly because it is actually our job to analyze and criticize, not to propose policy. I, I want to thank you. You've kind of one of my big takeaways from listening to you today is really a call to politics in all of its messy manifestations, right? Yes. And uh, I wonder, what do you read or watch or what do you consume that gives you uh, hope or sustenance in, in the pursuit of politics? Sometimes television. <laughs> <laughs> What do I read or watch uh, that gives me hope? Um, um, well, you've been reading Hannah Arendt, but that's I have not been exactly. Reading Hannah Arendt. Uh, actually, Hannah Arendt gives me a lot of hope. I mean, when you read um, one of the uh, one of the things that um, actually I remember reading soon after the election, rereading uh, and thinking, oh, yeah, this is this this is right. Uh, a letter that she wrote to her teacher, Carl Jaspers, uh, soon after first coming to this country. Uh, and actually, it was I think it was her first or second letter to him after they reconnected. And she was describing America to him. And one of the things that she described was that Americans have, while they are largely apolitical in the sense that Europeans understand them, understand politics, they have a very strong individual response to injustice. And, uh, and they have a strong understanding that they must act in response to injustice. And I thought, well, that's true. And that what a lovely uh, observation on uh, an American national trait. And when the protests happened uh, in response to the, uh, to the Muslim ban, that was a perfect expression of that very trait that she had observed in that letter in 1946. Um, so I think you know, that, that, that there's one thing that gives me hope. And of course, those protests give me a lot of hope. Well, uh, join us next week, same time, same place. Bhaskar Sintara, Jacobin, a big thank you to Masha Gaston. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Music